Hello and welcome to the Exploring Inequalities podcast. My name is Oliver Patel and I'm a research assistant at UCL Grand Challenges. For the first episode of the podcast, I'm joined by two of my fellow co-authors on the report, Siobhan Morris, who is the lead author from UCL Grand Challenge of Justice and Equality, and Olivia Stevenson from UCL Public Policy. Hello to both of you and thanks for joining. Thanks, Ollie. Hi, Ollie. So to kick things off, um, can you provide an overview of the project and how it came about? Exploring inequalities, igniting research to better inform UK policy, to give it its full title, is a collaboration between the Grand Challenge of Justice and Equality, UCL Public Policy and the Resolution Foundation Think Tank. And over the last nine months, the project has brought together a really broad range of experts from academia, business, policy, government and the third sector to really cut across the standard research and policy boundaries and try and break us out of silos that can sometimes form, especially when looking at inequalities. So throughout discussions, we've really aimed to try and synthesise and deepen our understanding of inequalities in the UK, thinking about how they're structural in nature and really trying to develop a sort of state of play, highlighting key evidence gaps and identifying ways that they could be filled, thinking about how this impacts policy and research agendas. Well, I suppose the project fits very well with UCL's deep history of thinking and tackling really complex, thorny issues. So it's quite a usual project in that sense for UCL to want to get involved in. And obviously that's why we have the grand challenges of justice and equality. It's very much embedded in the heart of what we want to do. But of course, it's actually a new collaboration. So it was kind of exploring together UCL and the Resolution Foundation about where it thought its overlaps and divergences would be and what it wanted to tackle together and of course this is what's led us to a rather complex and (laughs) far-reaching and wide-ranging project and we really have taken on something that's quite momentous. But ultimately recognising that one sector can't actually tackle inequalities alone and I think going forward after the report is launched thinking about how we can do more joined up work across sectors to try and dismantle some of the structural barriers in UK society. So before we start to delve into the report and what the report is arguing, um, let's just start with the big picture. So why are we talking about all this? Can you assess the scale of inequality in the UK today and, and why you think it's a problem worth tackling? Undoubtedly, great strides have been made in certainly recent decades towards tackling inequality in the UK. If you think about introduction of same-sex marriage legislation for one, but undoubtedly more needs to be done. And so we've been thinking about structural inequality in terms of meaning two core components, persistence and intersectionality. Thinking about persistence in relation to inequalities that are continually reinforced and compounded over time so that could be intergenerationally or throughout an individual's life or as a result of certain social barriers or inequalities within institutions and then intersectionality in terms of the relationships between inequalities and how they are cumulative so thinking about if you're a black disabled woman then you're facing multiple levels of disadvantage and we would argue that you can't just examine, in that case, inequality in terms of race, inequality in terms of disability, inequality in terms of gender. 
that's not how somebody lives their life. That's not the kind of true lived experience. So we need to be thinking about them holistically. But yeah, to answer why it's important today, I guess if I could give one example of what we mean, that would be probably UK employment rate. And whilst on the face of it, it's been on this kind of continual upward trajectory since 2012 with employment levels extremely high and for example the proportion of black asian and minority ethnic adults in work has really increased significantly by six percentage points from a decade ago so obviously that's great news that's what i meant in terms of strides have been made but that rate still lags behind that recorded by a white population by over 10 percentage points and it's a similar picture on pay so in raw terms, the average hourly pay of black male graduates is 24% lower than that recorded among white male graduates. And even when we control for the characteristics of the two populations and the jobs that they do, the gap remains in place. So that is where we compare workers and jobs that differ only in terms of the colour of their skin. A pay gap of 17% is still recorded. So in that sense, that barrier is structural And this project has been trying to think about how do we tackle that? It's not just about access to the labour market and inequality in that sense. It's about trying to think about the structural inequalities that persist even when you're in the labour market. We can't assume that people out there, the public, politicians, necessarily think that this matters. How do we go about making the case that inequality is something which we should seek to address? and is something which we should seek to to change. We also need to listen more because we need to hear where inequality is being experienced and talked about, but maybe not in the terms or the phrases in which policy or third sector or researchers understand. Actually, I think more people do care about this stuff than is taken account for, but it's not necessarily framed in a way that those that can make decisions can hear. So this project absolutely is about raising awareness and thinking about kind of sparking national conversations and raising voices and terms to the fore that actually are looking to address inequalities, but potentially through a different lens than we're used to hearing about. And that's especially why one of the key recommendations that the report makes is about focusing on equity rather than inequality, flipping the narrative and highlighting the positives to be gained from a more equal society rather than focusing on a kind of us versus them narrative. And so, yeah, coming on to that, so one thing that this report does really well is it identifies five key themes which help us understand inequalities and also gives us tools to tackle them. So one of those themes is language, but there are four others. So can you tell me about these five themes and why they matter and how they can help us solve these issues? Yeah, so this report hasn't been about necessarily making recommendations. It's been thinking about approaches that we can all take to thinking about inequalities and raising the awareness and tackling these very large, thorny, complex agendas. And as you so wonderfully articulated, we've come up with five themes. And the theme of language, which I struggle in a way myself, is not to be confused with we need a single language to describe and think and talk about inequalities. What it is is that we need to understand the languages that are used and what is meant by the language that is used to describe from different groups. So does it matter 
that we have a social mobility commission, a race disparity unit, a gender equalities unit, all using slightly different languages to describe their policy areas to tackle a single issue. Do we know how populations think of inequalities themselves? Do we know the words and the terms that they think of, as we've described earlier? Do we know how data is able to cope with the different languages that are used in surveys and instruments that are collecting data to form policies and to deploy policy approaches to solving this issue. So we've sort of begun to think through some of those complex and thorny issues and There's also the thing of linguistics and how the English language has inherent biases written into it. And what does that then mean for understanding structural and relational inequalities when actually you could say the English language prefaces heterosexual, non-disabled, married, white men? What does that mean for everybody else? So that's why we've taken language as one of our key approaches. Yeah, so the others are opportunity, thinking about how structural inequalities emerge before birth and then accumulate throughout an individual's life. And that necessarily requires us to think about the nature of inequality in terms of choice and agency and access to opportunity. Secondly, there's understanding evidence, which is about the quality and breadth of available intersectional evidence, Can you just say, what do you mean by intersectional evidence? What's the problem there? So thinking about how different data sets can be used to assess, as I said at the start, if I take the same example of a black disabled woman, a lot of data would just look at disability employment gaps, or it might look at disabled women and their experience in the labour market. But it's trying to build up that holistic picture of how inequalities are accumulative and that's where the evidence gap currently sits. Likewise, there's significant dearth of evidence, really quite a chronic lack of evidence on LGBT groups at the moment. So thinking about how we can encourage that to be more widely available in national statistics in particular. And um, that there was also the theme of voice. Yeah, so thinking about how fundamentally the availability of good evidence and a strong policy response to it is intrinsically linked with adequate voice and representation from the groups who are facing disadvantage. Because one thing that was interesting that you said at the start was that there has been progress, but actually you were suggesting that there's a lot going on that's much deeper, that's more important than hasn't been resolved. So can you speak a bit about why perhaps these phenomena can be a bit misleading as to how much progress has actually been made? So if we take the example of Scotland, we've got Nicola Sturgeon as First Minister, but in the local elections that were held in 2017, out of 36 local council leaders, only eight are women. So I guess that's what I meant in terms of leadership from the top is fantastic and great strides have been made but change remains to be done and similarly thinking about not just gender but other protected characteristics out of those council leaders all of them are white thinking about true representation for the population of the UK now and ensuring that that voice translates right across 
policy agendas and research agendas and kind of disseminates into every sector of society. Thinking about essentially changing society by changing who designs our policies. And on the final theme of place, can you say a little bit about the rationale behind place as a theme and why the geographic focus is important? The UK is extremely marked by inequalities in terms of geography and place. In that sense, it it was quite an obvious theme to pull out. Place has an impact on the employment prospects of black, Asian and minority ethnic individuals in particular. The research by the Resolution Foundation has shown that just 48% of BAME people in Northern Ireland are in employment, whereas that number is over 76% in the southeast of England. So thinking about place in terms of how it affects opportunity and then it really cut across the four thematic areas that the project looked at in terms of education, employment, health and housing. Every single one of them had a clear focus on place in terms of impacting what came next at each stage of the life course. What's interesting about this report is the nuance. It's not that there are policy recommendations telling them how to create quick fixes. Mm. Actually, it's the nuance of the evidence that's provided. And what we're trying to do is to show them approaches that they should consider in their policy developments, which will help them to move beyond having a patchwork of policies to tackle inequalities, to creating a fabric of policies that hopefully will bring wider effects for the public purse, essentially. So my key message is, Please read the report and engage in the substance. Siobhan Morris, Olivia Stevenson, thank you very much for talking to me today. It's been a pleasure. Thanks, Ollie. Thanks, Ollie. I'm now joined by Fameda Rahman, who is a researcher at the Resolution Foundation. The Resolution Foundation were the main partners of UCL on this project, and they played a key role in um, organising the project, putting it together, writing the report. So I'm really delighted to be joined by Fumida. Thanks for joining me. Thank you for having me. What were the biggest things which you learned from the project as, as a researcher working in this area? So I came into it with some knowledge about the sort of research that a lot of equalities bodies have done and the general notions of structural inequality, things I'd sort of studied at university and read about in my spare time because obviously it's something that I've spent a lot of time on and quite passionate about it. It's affected me personally in my own life. So yeah, I came with a background to it, but obviously coming from an area of quite an established mainstream think tank where we do a lot of research into lots of different types of policy, like housing, in the labour market, in sort of welfare. We need to integrate the two. We really need to bring the two together because when I was deciding on where I wanted to go in my own career, I was sort of torn between doing the sort of mainstream thing and doing the inequalities thing, looking at structural inequalities. But I really wanted to see the both combined. I didn't want to see inequalities as like a fringe thing tacked onto the side of it because actually all of these things are so 
mainstream to the inequalities debate they matter for it and if you sort of want to tackle inequality in all of these areas you need to think about these things and you need to think about these things as mainstream problems rather than the preserve of inequalities experts and I think if you want those things to be dealt with in policy in terms of the policy departments dealing with them they can't be just left to an inequalities body because those people can do research but ultimately they don't have the policy brief that actually impacts those things they don't have say over when the policy is written how that policy is going to be written I mean they can lobby but they're not in that space and they those people need to be integrated into that space so really my aim was to see those two things coming together and on the project, we looked at various areas of inequality, so health, education, housing and employment, and we tried to tie them all together and see what were the key themes or factors which connected all of these parts of inequality. And one of the main things we came up with is that there needs to be much more joined up policymaking within government, between government departments and agencies and local government, because too often government works in silos. Do you think this is something which is achievable? Do you think that government and civil service could do this? I think it is achievable and I think it's a bit unfair to say that they entirely work in silos. There are definitely overlaps and sort of Whitehall departments working together. But the structures and the way that the departments are set up do lend themselves to sort of the creation of silos and sort of what I was talking about inequalities is in itself a silo it's not integrated and I think other departments as well so like say education and housing and communities and health they all impact on each other they're all inequalities are heavily embedded they weigh like one weighs upon another weighs upon another the effects of your employment play out in the labor market when you're older the impact of the quality of your housing has an implication for your education and I think those things do need to be recognized and brought together and the design of having sort of a ministry of housing a ministry of education that works separately in like different parts doesn't quite lend itself to it but I think there are strategies or means that can be taken to sort of more regularly integrate those things. In the roundtables we had, lots of people had different perspectives as to what was, what's the most important thing here? Is there an underpinning thing such as class or ethnicity or place where someone is from that is the key thing which everything else stems from or do you not agree with that approach? I think that's actually quite a damaging approach to take. It's quite problematic because it paints the inequalities debate as a bit of a zero-sum game. Mm -hmm. So it's like all of these different people are competing for the same pot when actually they're not. And a lot of the time, those categories overlap. A working-class Pakistani person in Bradford is affected by place, class and ethnicity. Mm -hmm. All of those things come together. And so they're not competing for different pots. Mm -hmm. They're the same person wanting to be a part of a mainstream discussion and wanting to sort of be represented and feel like they're a part of the society and a worthwhile part of the society that the society cares for. So I think it's really, really problematic to say should we care more about class or should we care more about ethnicity? They're all equal. And I think actually the reason that we separate those things is because while a lot of the people are affected by different things, the reasons behind the inequalities that these groups face are often fundamentally different. So like mm -hmm. the inequalities that women face as a result of being a woman are different to those that disabled people face as a result of being disabled. And class can play into that, but the 
inequalities that are specific to women are specific to women. Working class women will have different struggles to middle class women, but there's this overriding issue of women sort of taking on the overwhelming burden of childcare and how that implicates their sort of labour market outcomes. So I think we need to look at inequalities as a whole rather than separating them out. And I don't think that trying to put one above another is particularly helpful. Mm-hmm. And just to pick up on the points you were making about intersectionality, to what extent do we have a full understanding of the specific experiences or inequalities which very specific groups face? You gave the example of a working class Pakistani person from Bradford. How well do we understand this subset or these various subsets around the country of people and and the struggles which they face? Well, I think a lot of research has obviously been done by academics, researchers in think tanks and various other people. I think the knowledge is out there, it's just not centralised. And I think in terms of the research that we do, like quite a Westminster-focused think tank, it's quite difficult for us to know those issues and for every single person to have an in-depth knowledge of it. And I think in terms of the data that's collected and if you're doing like big cross-national surveys, I think it's quite hard to get at those things because A, a lot of it is quite personal and quite difficult to quantify what the reasons are we can say that like employment is lower for x y and z or incomes are lower for x y and z but it's really hard to get to why without talking to all those people and really understanding those people and even then when we're trying to say that employment is lower for x y and z or incomes are lower for x y and z you have sample size issues when you're getting down to the really really granular it's a really really hard thing to do but We do know it and I think it's been highlighted in things like the race disparity audit and in research done by the Equalities and Human Rights Commission and by numerous think tanks working on these issues and academics and so on. So you don't think lack of evidence or knowledge is an excuse or anymore for not tackling... Not at all. The evidence mm-hmm. has been there for years and years and years. Even in like the 80s or 90s, they commissioned a huge census type survey on racial disparity. Mm-hmm. It's not the fact that we don't have the evidence. It's the fact that the impetus hasn't been there or the drive hasn't consistently been there to tackle it. And that's what we need. We need that drive to actually say, okay, we know these issues, we have some understanding of it, we can gain a better understanding of it, but research isn't the end goal. The end goal is tackling those things. And so what we need is the drive and the impetus to actually change things. It's actual real policy embedded in the departments that actually own the different policy areas in which those inequalities emerge and what's one hope that you have from this project and the work that we've done one thing that you hope will result from it so obviously there's only so much nine month project can solve but I think there have been positive outcomes in terms of just bringing together the group of people that we've brought together the people working on various various aspects of policies and the people working across the inequalities debate and I think we have sort of opened people's minds to different debates by bringing together such a broad range of people and I hope that some of those people take those things away with them into the work that they do Famida Rahman, thank you very much. It's been a pleasure to speak with you today. Thank you for 